By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode, we're covering the first topics in a six-week Moody's series on fintechs and how they fit into the broader world of banking. First, I'll be talking to Moody's analyst Steve Tu about the changing landscape for fintechs as funding becomes scarcer and only the strongest fintechs will survive, although some are definitely thriving. Later, my co-host Aaron McDermott will talk to Moody's analysts Alexander Albuquerque in Sao Paulo, Peter Paklin in Dubai, and Tang Fu Lee in Singapore about what emerging markets banks, and by that I'm talking about older, more established banks, about what these banks are doing to counter the threat from fintechs. And one of the main ways the established banks are meeting this threat has to do with just keeping their customers happier by giving them more simple high-tech ways to access financial services. In some cases, it's almost as if established banks are turning themselves into fintechs by focusing on technology and user experience. Here's Peter Paklin talking to Aaron about this dynamic. The recipe is very simple. What you need to do is to make existing and new clients happy and more engaged. And eventually this results in a higher profitability and wider market share for the company. We'll hear more on that in just a few minutes. But first, I'm here with Steve, too, to talk about why times are leaner for fintechs right now, tilting the scales in favor of older, more established banks for the moment, with some notable exceptions. Steve, welcome back. Uh, Hi, Danielle. Thanks. Glad to be back. So, Steve, first, maybe can you give some context to listeners? What do you mean when you talk about fintechs and why is it times are harder for them right now? Yeah, so for fintechs, we really mean more of the independent, uh, you know, financial technology companies that are trying to provide financial services using, you know, techs and tech apps, and yeah, anything from payments to insurance uh, to brokerage. But what we're really talking about, you know, w- with this report are the, you know, challenger banks, the digital neo banks that could either be independents or part of conglomerates that are trying to provide. You know, payment, savings, lending services to clients. Okay, and why is the climate right now more difficult for these fintechs? Well, probably the main thing is, uh, you know, since the the bursting of the the you know the bubble post COVID, you've had you know more inflation leading to rising rates and a pullback in funding. And one of the biggest sources of fuel for a lot of these fintechs in the past years has been venture capital funding and you know also hot hot IPO market. Both of those have cooled down significantly, and really that you know venture capital funding that was funding a lot of business models that's been a big drag on a lot of the growth here. And then also you can see you know the public market valuations towards growth entities as opposed to value that has also you know been been quite a headwind for them. Okay, and my understanding is also a lot of the um, fintechs, uh, the you know like many startups to be fair, they just weren't profitable. And one question I've had. It's been kind of bugging me is, you know, were they ever going to be profitable? I mean, were some of these fintechs going to disappear eventually anyhow, regardless of 
a change in macro environment or, or sources of capital drying up? Yeah, so there were plenty of new entrants, uh, you know, fintech entrants that weren't bringing anything, you know, t- very new to the world in terms of, you know, better technology. And they were using existing banking infrastructure, overlaying it with maybe a, a nicer, sleeker user interface. Some of them were also, you know, kind of doing things like regulatory arbitrage, earning higher fees than some of their competitors uh, that were more traditional, larger banks. And so these types of business models might not have survived intense competition in the future anyway. And, you know, the, the market conditions that we just talked about probably has just accelerated that. Okay. And, and what about competition from, you know, older established banks or incumbent banks, as Moody's tends to call them in research? Yeah. So the incumbent banks have definitely realized the disintermediation risks they could face from, you know, fintechs and also, you know, from big techs. Um, that we're trying, you know, trying to get into financial services, and a lot of them have definitely, you know, taken this more seriously up their capital spend in technology, not just on the maintenance side, but on you know the client acquisition and servicing and analytics side. A number of them also have made acquisitions, and in our report, really, you know, we found some very compelling examples of this, mostly in you know, emerging markets. Um, where you know the banks have really some incumbents have really taken this very seriously and you know dramatically invested in digital transformation, and some of them even really pivoting their business models to almost even look like more of a tech company than a bank. Right, and in emerging markets, there is a really big need for some new creative ways to broaden access to financial services. That's my understanding. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. Some of the most compelling examples we found, not only on the fintech side, but on you know, even on the incumbent side, have been in emerging markets, and you know that's you know probably because there's a lot of you know the unbanked populations, the underbanked populations are very large there, you know, and companies can really use technology to increase access to you know broad swaths of the population. Uh, on the fintech side, there the the government seem to also recognize this, and they they do want to promote that more. And the regulations have been actually more, you know, more friendly to to challenger banks there. Yeah. And in, in fact, in the report you recently published, you, you mentioned that there are some examples of fintechs that have posted really impressive growth, even in today's more difficult climate. Yeah, I think what, one of the main points we want to make is that, you know, even with all this difficulty for fintechs currently, you know, the long term promise of technology to lower costs, increase efficiency, broaden financial inclusion, you know, reduced frictions, that still remains. And when we looked around the world, we found some very compelling examples of, you know, digital challenger banks that were still doing very well in this environment. You know, some of them are actually associated with, you know, some large technology conglomerates, you know, someone like a Kakeo Bank, but then there are also like standalones, like a new bank, um, you know, that were benefiting you know, from what we just discussed, you know, a very fertile environment of, um, of unbanked to, to grow in. And, you know, they been very successful growing in Brazil and now have expanded into Mexico. Right. And and since you mentioned Nubank, uh, that's actually a nice segue over to Aaron, who's going to be talking to Alexander, Tangfu, and Peter about some established banks in emerging markets that have risen to meet the threat from fintechs like Nubank. Thank you, Danielle. And welcome, Alexander, Tangfu, and Peter. Alexander, let's start with you in Brazil. First of all, some background on Brazil. There's a pretty big fintech there, Nubank, that has gained market share very rapidly. I think Warren Buffett invested in it. Thanks, Erin. Yes, you're right. Um, we're talking here about Nubank, 
It's a company that was established as a credit card company operation. It offers not only credit card, but digital accounts to its clients. And one of the reasons why it has grown so much and so fast is the fact that it, it has started, it started to offer products to low-income individuals, so individuals that not necessarily had banking products in the past, right? That were either underbanked or, or underserviced by the traditional banks. And these are very simple products. Products, for example, credit card that has a minimum, for example, of $10, very small amounts of, of limits. And this access to credit cards and to financial service has been one of the, uh, the secrets why the company has expanded so much in it, its uh, operation. You did a case study on Itaú, the largest retail bank in Brazil, about the ways it's been trying to meet the fintech threat. What's Itaú been doing? Well, uh, I believe it's important to uh, to highlight here that Itaú and, and the other large incumbent banks in Brazil, they are heavily adopters of uh, technology, and they have been invested in, in uh, uh, technology improvement of their operations for a long period of time, for over 20 years now. In the specific case of Itaú, what we have uh, noticed is that the bank had this very active not only in acquiring other companies that, that can help the bank to provide additional service, but also developing its own digital application and also moving toward a more customer-centric philosophy that, that banks, as a matter of fact, they have been doing in Brazil in the past 10 years. So uh, uh, these are all uh, important steps that Itaú has been taking to maintain its, its participation in the market. Ito has also made some acquisitions in the fintech space, right? Yes, you're right. As I briefly mentioned before, Itaú has, uh, uh, in the past five years, we have seen the bank making some acquisitions of uh, other companies and and fintechs as well. One example is uh, a cloud-based digital broker that Itaú acquired in January 2022 uh, that add electronic trading to its suite of products. In uh, July of that same year, uh, the bank also acquired a digital broker uh, that offered financial service to Brazilian customers that, that are domicile abroad or that have financial investments abroad. And the bank also acquired a digital application developer to help launch uh, applications uh, to its customers. And because attracting younger and unbanked or underbanked people is a theme in all emerging markets, because the populations are younger and there are many more people without bank accounts, what's Ito doing to reach that segment? Well, that's that's an, an interesting question, right? Uh, last year, we saw the bank launching a digital bank with digital accounts for for gamers in Brazil. So it's mostly, you know, to, to very young people, uh, teenagers and, and, and young adults, which they could, besides, you know, having this digital account, they could accumulate points and, and they could have rebates or discount in, in buying, you know, uh, games in, in certain stores. But Itaú has also been focused on capturing other type of clients that n- not necessarily belong to its customer base. For example, the bank has also launched a payment application called ITI or ET. And this application is, is, this is mostly focused on, on uh, low-income individuals. So it's, a, it's an attempt to, uh, to compete with Newbank. And it provides clients with uh, 
uh, an account, a digital account that has no fees attached to it. And uh, most interestingly, with this new application, Itel has already been able to increase uh, its customer base by roughly 20 million clients. And uh, about 85% of, of these new customers, they actually they don't have traditional banking accounts with Itaú. So uh, uh, it's uh, an additional customer base that the bank has been able to, to access through this application. Alexander, thank you for that overview. Shifting to another emerging market in Kazakhstan, Peter Paklin is here to talk to us about Caspi Bank. Peter, hi. Welcome to Focus on Finance. Hi, Erin. Nice to be here. So, Peter, one approach an established bank could take to meeting the fintech threat is to turn itself into a fintech, or at least that's what it looks like Caspi did? Yes, that's exactly what Caspi Bank began to do a few years ago. And today, it looks and um, works as a large-scale technology company offering a wide range of client-centric services far outside the usual remit of a bank. Interestingly, that five years ago, the company dropped bank from its corporate title, rebranding itself as simply Caspi KZ. And about 15 years ago, Caspi was an ordinary medium-sized bank in Kazakhstan with about 300,000 customers. For the reference, uh, the population of Kazakhstan is about 19 million people. In 2007, Michael Lamtadze became a new chief executive of the bank, and he began transformation of Caspi into a retail-focused bank, and then began developing its payment business. In 2014, Caspi introduced an online marketplace to provide customers with online shopping experience. So it did reinvent itself as a fintech, basically. Yes, indeed. Today, Caspi KZ is the largest payments marketplace and fintech ecosystem in Kazakhstan with a 12 million customer base. The group encompasses several companies, of which the largest and the most important are Caspi Bank, a fintech pillar, Caspi Pay, a payments pillar, and Caspi Shop, marketplace or e-commerce pillar. Since 2006, uh, the group has increased its assets more than five times to $8.5 billion dollars while its net profit surged 21 times to $1 billion in 2021. Its market capitalization was about $14 billion at the end of last month and exceeded its book value by nine times, a multiple more often associated with high-growth IT companies than with banks. And Caspi KZ also demonstrates a very strong profitability results with return on assets of 11.8% over the first nine months of 2022. So very successful. How did that happen? The recipe is very simple. What you need to do is to make existing and new clients happy and more engaged. Happy and engaged customer is usually loyal, stays longer with the company, purchases high number of products and generates higher revenue per client. And eventually this results in a higher profitability and wider market share for the company. Over the recent years, incumbent banks have introduced various tools to relate customers' happiness, loyalty, and satisfaction with particular products or banking brand more generally, including use of Net Promoter Score or NPS, Customer Satisfaction Index, and other metrics. For instance, Caspi makes over 50,000 phone calls monthly just to get its clients' feedback and data to calculate NPS. There's one anecdote you include in the report you wrote on this about a product Caspi actually discontinued. Can you 
talk about that? Sure. Uh, a few years ago, Caspi noticed uh, that its credit card business, although making a significant part of the loan portfolio and generating a significant part of net revenue, it had a negative NPS as a product. People hated different fees attached to credit cards and uh, that they couldn't repay the debt over time due to its revolving nature. So the product was very profitable for the bank, but made lots of clients unhappy. And eventually, Caspi's management took the decision to shut down its credit card program based on negative feedback. Instead, in 2016, um, they launched Caspi Red, a buy now, pay later product that enabled customers to make purchases at select retailers with interest free three months installments. So that's the story in a nutshell. That is interesting. So even though credit cards were really profitable, they actually listened to their customers and decided to scrap the whole program. Peter, thank you for that. And staying in Asia now, we're going to check in with Tangfu Lee about Bank Central Asia in Indonesia. Tangfu, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. So, Tangfu, tell me about Bank Central Asia. Sure. Bank Central Asia, or BCA, is Indonesia's leading transaction bank. It is also one of the most profitable banks in Asia. Among others, the bank has two unique strengths that I would really like to tell you today. Firstly, BCA has a superior access to low-cost current and saving accounts, which constitute more than 80% of its deposits. Secondly, the bank's efficiency is unparalleled, with a cost-income ratio that is below 35%. And BCS digital transformation has been key to its leadership in transaction banking. And in fact, more than 90% of the transaction volume is now processed through internet and mobile channels. So what's BCA doing to push back against the threat from fintechs? BCA outperforms on customer experience thanks to digitalization. If you go to the Google store, you, you will find that it is highly rated. And I'll say there are two main reasons for the outperformance. Uh, the first one being BCA has in fact made all kinds of financial transactions really convenient to customers through what we call application programming interface or API connections with thousands of partners. These connections not only enable BCA customers to make payments for a wide variety of services, they also allow them to book hotels, hill rides, and do grocery shopping through the bank's mobile app. In addition, BCA customers can pay with just a single click at many third-party online platforms via the bank's one-click feature. And the second reason is, BCA has developed a wide range of digital financial services. They include companion apps Sakoku and Wellma, which provide digital wallet and investment services as well as Merchant BCA, which allows corporate customers to monitor and manage payment transactions on mobile devices. That is a lot of digital financial services. Tengfu, I read somewhere that there are something like 90 million unbanked people in Indonesia, which is close to a third, I believe, of the country's population. What's BCA doing to reach some of the unbanked? And also the younger population. I'm, I'm going to guess there's some overlap in sort of the Venn diagram of young population and unbanked or underbanked population. You are right. Financial services re remain underpenetrated in Indonesia. 
And in fact, you know, uh, young people are a large part of the unbanked and underserved population. This had, you know, uh, attracted many local and overseas investors to acquire small banks in the country with the hope that digitalization will help them expand into the untapped market. And obviously, BCA has done this too by setting up a banking subsidiary that provides online-only um, financial services called BCA Digital. Its mobile app Blue is designed for the younger population and is embedded into its affiliated e-commerce platform. The bank also offers very competitive deposit rates and it can do that because of cost savings channeled from its branchless operating model. Right. I mean, I think cost savings are key. That's a theme that we've been hearing a lot about. Thank you, Tang Fu. And thanks also to Peter, Alexander, Aaron, and Steve. And a big thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. To dive deeper into any of the topics in this episode and see all the research for the FinTech series as it comes out, you can go to the link for today's episode at moody's.com slash podcasts and click on the show notes. And if you're listening to us on your favorite streaming platform, please remember to follow or subscribe. And please tune in again soon for future episodes of Focused on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.